HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. For more information, visit culturecity.org. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This week, I'm delighted to have in studio author Mary Izette of Speed Brewing. Welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're very welcome. I'm laughing because Mary has a show also on Heritage Radio Network, so she is probably the most comfortable guest (laughs) I've ever had, knows the drill, knows everything about it, and her show is on in two hours, and is called Ferment About It? Yep, Ferment About It. Right. (laughs) I didn't know exactly the stress. Um... So that is a part of this amazing radio station, that there's cheese shows, beer shows, and they can overlap. Absolutely. (laughs) Cheese and beer, they're pretty closely related anyway. They are. They are. (laughs) Okay, so um, the book is great. Uh, I recommend it to everyone interested in beer or fermenting or doing things quickly or... Uh, a lot of different things, and um, beer is booming, and small craft beers are booming too. And is home brewing booming just like that? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. When did you start? Home so brewing? I started home brewing. Well, I probably had dabbled in other beverages before. Like I, I made an alcoholic ginger ale probably in oh man, late nineties, early two hmm. thousands. Um, okay. But I started home brewing beer seriously. In January of 2006. Okay. And where did you start? My apartment. Okay. Which at the time I was in South Park Slope. Okay. Yep. Now, I I envision a bathtub. This is, <laughs> is that just from moonshine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bathtub is scary. Too, ma- too many germs in the bathroom, oh, I think. Oh, okay. Too much okay. crazy okay. bacteria and yeast. No, so pe- most you can, anybody can homebrew in their kitchen, actually. Okay. So. Okay. And are you a mad scientist? I mean, was science your thing? Yeah. yeah. So I have an, my undergrads in biology, and okay. then I did two years of graduate school in horticulture, but 
but doing things with the kind of biochemistry of onions. So more of a hard science horticulture than a okay. than landscaping, for instance. Oh, oh um, okay. So, yeah, I've always loved science. I took a ton of chemistry and biology and mm-hmm. all kinds of other science classes as an undergrad and, and grad student. And uh, I've always loved it. That's not what I do. My day job overlaps with science, but I'm not mm-hmm. a true scientist in the, you know, in the true way of speaking about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that was one thing that really attracted me to homebrewing is that that allows me. It's kind of like all those 7.20 a.m. chemistry labs that I had to go to, only way more fun. (laughs) With good results. Exactly. good results. Yes, yes. Making alcohol is definitely a science, but it's kind of a lot of magic, too. (laughs) Now, what was your day job when you started brewing? Same thing as it is now. And what is that? So I'm in pharmaceutical sales. Oh, okay. So are they, is that full time? Are they understanding? Do they know you're a famous beer person? (laughs) Yeah, there is. There's a little bit of that. So that's, you know, kind of my day job. And then Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm really suck at sitting still. So I brew um, weekends at night. Uh But that is one of the reasons why I was attracted to a lot of the, to these beverages that I wrote about in speed brewing Mm -hmm. is because home brewing, if you do a full batch of beer in the traditional method, Mm -hmm. it really takes a weekend day. Okay. Um, And a lot of times I don't have a weekend day or, you know, that you want to spend. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, you wake up a little early in the morning or I get home from work. I want to be able to make something in those times Mm -hmm. and not, you know, have to devote five or six hours. Right. So that kind of was part of the reason that led me to this, these beverages that uh, I wrote about in the book. Right. That was my next question. Did you do regular home brewing first yeah, and absolutely. then segued into wanting to be quicker? Yeah, okay. definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started out, most home brewers, now it's it's actually changing a little bit today. Mm-hmm. I just actually went to, I was in hops school last month or the month before, and Gary Glass, who's the president of the American Homebrewers Association, um, actually gave a kind of a, he gave a seminar on like the state of home brewing. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing is, so traditionally homebrewers would start with something called extract brewing. So you're basically buying kind of like a golden syrup. Okay. So the grain has already been converted into this this viscous malt syrup. Okay. And you boil that, you add your hops or your flavorings or whatever, you, you cool it down, and then you um, pitch your yeast into it. But you're mm-hmm. not starting with grain. Okay. It's actually a much faster so way. So it's a little bit into the process yeah. already, so you don't have to wait Exactly. For the first step. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, then so I did that, I think, for one, maybe just the first batch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started doing a partial mash where you still are using this extract, but you're using grain in some way as well. Okay. Um, and then I moved to traditional all-grain brewing after that. Um, mm-hmm. And that basically... Which is harder. Yeah, and it just takes more time because okay. you're, you're basically, you're starting with grain. Mm-hmm. So I did, I actually had a, a really nice, good friend of mine, Bill Coleman, who's still, still in Brooklyn, who um, had stopped homebrewing and I got all of his equipment. So I had everything, a mill, I had two coolers to, mm-hmm. the whole works, a gorgeous brew pot. Um, so, you know, I would start, I would mill my grain and then I would do this traditional all, what's called all grain brewing, Mm -hmm. where you're basically doing something called a mash. And what you're doing is you're converting the starches in this crushed barley into sugars and you're leaching them from the grain and making this sugar solution. Okay. And that's called wort or, uh, and then you boil that, you add hops, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But that is a timely process. You go Mm -hmm. through not only the mash, but then you sparge, which is a way of 
you basically want to get as much sugar out of these grains mm-hmm. as you can. So you're you're basically um, kind of showering them down with more water to leach more of the sugar mm-hmm. solution. There are a lot of new vocabulary words <laughs> in your book and in beer. It seems. Yes, there's we have our sparge, own vocabulary. There's yes, word. There's I, I, like I you I think a glossary is necessary. In I know the book. that that we I almost did that. Yeah, in the back. Where's the glossary? I keep forgetting what this means. But anyway, okay. So so is this what you were doing? And then you decided to try to do it faster. Yeah. So I had read about. Well, I was frustrated because I was brewing. I have a twelve gallon brew pot, so it's mm-hmm. a really big brew pot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would basically. My wort, which is a sugar solution, mm-hmm. I would end up draining it into my brew pot, which is set. I had a patio at the time, a shared backyard in mm-hmm. South Park Slope, Brooklyn. So I would set it on the floor, and then I had to get it on. I was using a gas, a propane burner in my backyard, which I had set on top of like a turned over barrel so that it was easy to stir. It was a nice, you know, setup. But it was really hard. I mean, it's heavy. Like six and a half gallons of freaking Mm -hmm. sugar water is heavy, right? right? Plus a 12-gallon stainless steel pot. I mean, Mm -hmm. so I was really frustrated because it was really difficult for me. And just, I don't want to do it by yourself. Yeah, exactly. Lift that pot on. Mm -hmm. So I came across this uh, method called brew in a bag. Okay. That was actually developed by Australian home brewers. Okay. And not only did it allow me to not have to lift that pot from my patio onto this elevated burner, I could do everything in the pot. It cut out the sparging, this rinsing of the grains. So it cut out that step entirely. So saved me, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Mm -hmm. The cleanup was a heck of a lot easier. And as I said, it was just, uh, it just, it was a much smoother, smoother flow in my brew day. But it also makes you, um, makes your amount smaller. No, you can do any. Oh, you well, because the pictures are small. Yeah, so I do a lot of small batch brewing. Okay, um, not only because so now I'm in an apartment in South Williamsburg. We mm-hmm. don't have a backyard, so I'm back mm-hmm. to brewing on the stove, mm-hmm. and it's a lot faster. I mean, the you get your water to the temperature that you want it before you get before you begin brewing faster. You come to a boil faster, mm-hmm. and it's just easier to make us and faster to make a small batch and you know that's every step is is exactly yeah not every step but the most yeah the ones that count Mm -hmm. um and also you know a lot of people in new york city and and even other areas of the country not everybody has time to do a full brew Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. they don't have the space necessarily or a place to store the equipment so if you do a two gallon batch it's not only a lot faster but it's much more compact you know Mm -hmm. that carboy can fit in your corner of your closet or Mm -hmm. whatever Um, And you can taste it and see how good it is. And then you'll know, is this one I want to do more of or again? Yep. Because sometimes you probably pick loser recipes. Right, exactly. And then you have a lot of bad beer. Yeah. And honestly, I don't want to drink. I mean, five gallons of beer is a lot of beer. Right. I don't really want to drink five gallons of the same beer. I want to drink, you know, different beers. Now, how soon do they get drinkable? So it's going to vary. So... All of the recipes in my book are lower alcohol. Okay. And so that's the key to having kind of a fast 
beer, you know, beer that's drinkable pretty quickly. And what's about the percent alcohol that you Anytime, call Anything lower. under five. Okay. Yeah. So I would say between like three and a half and five. And it's a little trickier to get flavors with mm-hmm. that because a lot of times... Because it's faster. So it's yeah. not hanging out as long. And you're not using as many ingredients. So you're okay. not using as much malt. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times beers are driven by the aroma and flavor of malt. Mm-hmm. So when you do some of these kind of session ales, you're looking at other components of... Of Taste. beer, yeah, to okay. contribute more aroma and flavor, mm-hmm. like hops right. or spices or yeast and bacteria can add a lot of flavor. So you're looking to those other components to add more aroma and flavor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I actually have a Bia Hoi recipe, which is kind of a, a Vietnamese lager that's mm-hmm. part rice and part Pilsner malt. So that's mm-hmm. a very light tasting malt. So it comes out very drinkable, light body. You know, that's the beer that you want to drink when it's 95 degrees out and you're mm-hmm. hanging out at the corner, you know, a street corner mm-hmm. in, in Hanoi, Vietnam, <laughs> basically, or anytime New York right. City, you know, right. 90 degree New York City days. I mm-hmm. want to come home and drink mm-hmm. this. And that's ready in about four days, actually, okay. if you're kegging. Okay. Now I have a, many more questions in many more directions. <laughs> Is there a backlash from this concept? Are there anti-speed brewers? Yeah, I would say there definitely are. I mean, I haven't. Are, they, are you changing their minds? Will this book? From my experience, yes. Okay. So here's what happened. Part mm-hmm. of the reason is, you know, I work full time, so obviously I don't have all the time to brew. But right. I was also brewing a lot of sour ales for a while, mm-hmm. and those sour beers take between a year and a half to two, maybe more years, to fully develop. Uh. They're driven by bacteria and yeast that mm-hmm. take a little more time to develop. Okay. Um. So that was another thing. I had all these car. I had a shared basement. I had all these carboys, which are the vehicles that you ferment. They're just kind of look like those big Poland spring water bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you ferment in. Oftentimes, are pails. Uh, so I had a, a lot of those tied. Actually, I had eighteen in my basement at one point. And you know, I was like, "This is ridiculous. I have to stop. Ma- I need to make something I can drink now." Mm-hmm. So that was another reason. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Even if you're brewing sours, or maybe you know, home brewers, like I said. You have a new baby, or you get a new job, or life just gets in the way of your home brewing. It's better. It's really nice, and these beverages are a lot of really nice alternatives as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of renewed interest in cider. Cider mm-hmm. is a true American mm-hmm. beverage, and some of these other beverages people have been brewing around the world, and they're absolutely delicious. But we've never seen them in America. Mm-hmm. Now, what about cost? Is it cheaper to brew your own? It's going to depend on what you drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of things that depend. I think that it can be, mm-hmm. um, especially here in New York City. Okay. But it's not necessarily for no, cost. Right. That exactly. Are doing it. Yeah. No, I think it's more okay. for, for creativity and kind of, you know, even though I'm a scientist, like I said, it's, there's something magic about making alcohol at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to share something that you made with your friends and family, something that's absolutely delicious. So I got married last weekend. Mm-hmm. And Congratulations. Thank you. We so, saw it on Facebook. <laughs> so we had a beer and beverage festival with the wedding in the middle. It was a very I'm casual. Sure. And I, I actually served four of my beverages from the book. And a lot of people, you know, they had ne- I had... And you had made them. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I served a coconut short mead. So it's mm-hmm. a honey-based beverage. A coconut short mead. With, that I made with a coconut rooibos tea and a little bit of pineapple. Um, and people loved it. They were like... What I don't even know what this is, but it's was delicious. Was that the first course? That was, yeah, that was the first keg that went on. Yeah, but it was. It's just always cool to for people that have never because a lot of the beverages in my book we don't have it. They don't exist, and there's no commercial versions available in this country. Right. Um, and it so it's really a treat to be able to mm-hmm. make these and share them. Now, um, 
do home brewers and small craft brewers get along and overlap? Definitely. Okay. And do some of those home brewers go into the business Absolutely. and become small craft Absolutely. brewers? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think that is a lot. I, well, although I do have a gypsy brewing company with Chris Kuzme, who's my hus- now husband and and uh, partner, partner, yeah, fermentation partner. <laughs> so he is a good example. I met him at the New York City Homebrewers Guild. He's now a professional brewer. Um, I would say the majority, actually pretty much all the breweries that are opening up, we're going to see three new breweries in Bushwick, which is the neighborhood we're in, Okay, um, open in the, probably the next year and a half. And they're all, they all started, started as, as homebrewers. Home okay. Absolutely. No, we're probably going to see four, I'd say in the next two years. Huh. Yep. And the, the homebrewer clubs, are they getting more, you know, are oh, there yeah. more of them? Yes. And when, yeah. Absolutely. Are they, do they have different personalities and Definitely. are they friendly with each other? Yeah, I think so. That's, um, so when I started homebrewing in 2006, we had two homebrew clubs or two kind of beer clubs. One was exclusively homebrew. The other was both, you know, kind of craft beer and homebrewing oriented. And now we have over a dozen in the five boroughs. We have two in Staten Island alone. I mean, there's, oh, that's yeah, we have some that have just started within the last nine months okay. and they definitely have a different personality, but we actually here in New York City and across the country, actually, uh, particularly in urban areas where there, there are multiple clubs, there's a lot of kind of all homebrewing events where the clubs come oh, together oh. and hold do events compete? or tastings. Do they compete? Or, absolutely. Oh, Sometimes. contests? Yep. Okay. Oh, def- oh. Um, Competitions are a vital part of homebrewing. <laughs> and is there a hierarchy? Are, are homebrewers snobby? Or are, do you find beer no. people are snobby? No, I would say that's... That, no, definitely not. The beer community, homebrewing and beer community, is is one of the most amazing communities I've been in. I mean, I've been in situations where I've been at a brewery across the country and not known anyone. Say, like, I've been on a work trip. I always try to fit in a couple breweries when we, you know, if we have a break or some free time. And every single time I meet somebody wonderful that, you know, that is absolutely that happy is to talk to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm-hmm. It's an mm-hmm. incredible community. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you think of the idea for the book? So the book came about, I actually had started started making these somewhat unusual beverages. And I did a seminar at the American Homebrewers Association it has a big conference every year called the National Homebrewers Conference. And I think it, they're up to around, I don't know, between 5,000 and 6,000 people mm-hmm. uh, attend. And it's absolutely amazing. And they have a series of incredible seminars. So I had proposed, sent a seminar proposal and it was accepted. So I spoke on kind of these alternative fermentations, both what I, some of the ones I wrote about in the book, as well as some Mm non-alcoholic ones as well. Um, And that was really well received. So Mm -hmm. I had kind of become this, you know, I was very vocal about Mm -hmm. um, these beverages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, not because I, you know, just because I love them. I mean, I was having a blast. People Mm -hmm. were, people love to drink them. Um, And so that's, I was approached by an editor, um, a friend of mine, a homebrewing friend of mine that I actually met at the National Homebrewers Conference probably five or six years ago, uh, was writing a book with this editor and was going to use one of my recipes. And so mm-hmm. the editor got in touch with me, and, and that's how that's the book came the book to be. Came yep. um, now, the, just to let the listeners know, this book is about beer, cider, mead, and and more even... Yeah, boozy kombucha, alcoholic kombucha, <laughs> far-flung ferments, which are international ferments. I, I mentioned earlier that people have been fermenting whatever they have on hand for thousands of years mm-hmm. and doing it, you know, turning it into alcoholic beverage. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really interesting, fast, delicious beverages that have been made around the world that, you mm-hmm. know, that are super Were you fun. always going to include more than beer? Oh, definitely, yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Well, we have to take a break. Uh, we'll be back with Mary Isaac in a couple minutes. from Cooking Issues, and I'm here to talk to you about the Museum of Food and Drink, which is finally getting a brick-and-mortar space right here in Brooklyn, New York. So the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the history of the flavor industry. It tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum of Food and Drink at the MOFAD Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. This is Culture City's founder, Julian Maha. Culture City was really born out of uh, necessity. You know, it was born when my, uh, you know, currently six-year-old boy was diagnosed with autism. Uh, his name is Abram and he's non-verbal. And even though my wife and I were both physicians at the time, it was really hard for us to find any resources at that point to help him all the other organizations out there that we know of, um, they do phenomenal work, but their main focus is basically finding a cure for autism. Our main focus is basically trying to prepare the community to accept not only children with autism, but their families as well. You know, in addition to that, we also want to provide help to these families in the here and now. You know, so tangible things like, you know, iPads for nonverbal kids, you know, financial scholarships, uh, therapy scholarships, you know, art camps and also some um, lecture series that can teach parents about, you know, dietary issues, um, you know, how to financially plan and things like that. For more information, visit culturecity.org. Hi, it's Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd with Mary Azette, who wrote Speed Brewing. And a few more questions about the book before we get into <laughs> beer content. Um, how long did it take you to write, plan, test the recipes? <sighs> So I guess I signed the contract in February of last year, and then we probably we finished shooting the photographs. Those photographs were were shot by Michael Harlan Turkell, who's mm-hmm. a another host on this network in your house. Yep, in our loft. That's yep. what I thought. And uh, so we probably finished that. Uh, so the whole thing took about a year. Okay. 
It's good because these are fast fermenting beverages. So I, I could, wanted the book to be yes, fast fermenting. Exactly. Too. I had, but last summer I had about 40 things fermenting at, at any given time. There were charts on the wall. There were oh, lots of were labeling. Your recipes yes, yes. And making sure you had everything perfectly right. Yeah. Now, do home brewers improvise or do they always follow recipes? Oh, no. You can definitely both. Both. For okay. sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, what was I mean, the, it's kind of like a, like a recipe. Like your favorite recipe that you would cook with, right? Mm-hmm. So when we learn to cook, you know, you kind of learned f- usually from a recipe or mm-hmm. maybe some adult in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could always, you know, once you kind of master that, you can riff from there mm-hmm. once you get to know your ingredients right. and the outcomes. Are you a cook? Do you spend a lot of time cooking or are you too busy brewing? <laughs> I, I don't cook right now at all. <laughs> I will confess. I love to cook. I especially love to bake. Okay. Um, Dessert. Yeah. Okay. Or breads. Mm-hmm. Breads. Uh, yeah, anything baking is really my my jam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'll be honest, like I haven't had time and it's really easy in New York City to, to not ever cook. Right, right. Uh, let's see. So the pictures were in your kitchen. Do you have writing experience? Did you? Yeah, so I've been writing on the side, just beer columns and, and mm-hmm. that. I had a blog for a, for a long time. I still do. I need to get back to it. I just haven't had time. But. Okay. Okay. So let's talk more about some of the specifics. I'm always looking at things through a more of a cheese lens where quality of milk may mm-hmm. be paramount in making good cheese. Right. So what's how do you get good beer? So I think actually, obviously, quality ingredients is very okay. important. Okay. And um, which ingredients are the most important? I think it depends on the, what you're making, whether it be beer or some of these other beverages, like cider, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're using traditional cider apples, you're going to get a very different outcome than than using uh, a store-bought apple juice. Um, although I, th- I would argue that that both have their value. You just have to know what to do with them mm-hmm. and what to, you know, your kind of end goal. Um, and so I you'd think you have to revolve your recipe around your ingredients on occasion. Definitely, definitely. Although I would say, like, for just looking at fr- from home brewing beer, particularly, we have such an amazing array of ingredients available to homebrewers now. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and it's really changed since I started. We now have hops that are being developed just for homebrewers. Um, and it used to be you couldn't get a, a super wide variety of grain. Now we can get as much grain, if not more, than the professional brewers. Mm-hmm. It seems like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really boomed. Oh, definitely. Um, now, are batches made with the same ingredients, two different days or two different weeks, always the same? And if not, what affects the difference? So they can be the same. That's obviously, you know, some of the larger breweries or bre- any brewery really mm-hmm. that has a flagship beer, they want to make sure they get the same. Right. Now they that's want not consistency. Yeah, that's not as important as home brewing, obviously, but I do I've never been I, there's a lot of homebrewers out there that really nail, nail down their recipe. They'll make the same recipe, you know, as many times as it takes to get it where they want. And mm-hmm. they can replicate it exactly. And if you have the equipment to do so, there there should not be a problem with that at all. Okay. Um, some of the things that can change it are mash temperature. So you have to be pretty cognizant. As long as you get to know your... Everybody's system is differently. Mm-hmm. As, I mean, different as on the pro brewing level, but especially on the home brewing mm-hmm. level as well. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and you talk a lot about temperature. That's important. Yes, temperature is important both when you're brewing as well as fermentation. Okay. So fermentation, temperature during fermentation, how you treat your yeast, whether it be temperature or 
uh, pressure or size and shape of your fermenter. There's a pitch rate, how much yeast you actually pitch into your beer or mm-hmm. cider or whatever. Um, all those things can, can definitely affect the outcome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, are the sources or the ingredients from the same store and company guaranteed to lead to the same taste beer? Yes. I mean, a lot... Uh, that's tricky, too. Yeah, I'd say for the most part, a lot of these more commonly well-known malts, for instance, or yeast, they're very... These companies that produce them know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other ones, like I find smoked malts will be very different depending on how you know how long ago they smoked them. They'll lose their mm-hmm. smoke after a while. Mm-hmm. Obviously, any ingredients from, from hops to yeast to to uh, malt have a shelf life okay so you want to use as the you want fresh. freshest okay. ingredients possible yeah and what about water yeah water can drastically change mm-hmm. uh we're very lucky here in new york city we have pretty much perfect water for brewing um but you can definitely use additions to to affect the the taste of your water and ultimately the taste of the beer mm-hmm. now when i came across the brew in the bag I saw B-I-A-B, and I couldn't figure out, what is she talking about? (laughs) It's brew Brew in a a bag. bag. Yep. Um, What percent of home brewers do that? You know, I don't know the percentage. I think it's smaller than all grain brewers, but more and more people, I mean, it is all grain brewing. It's just this different system, different Mm -hmm. equipment, different approach. Um, But more and more people are doing so. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely becoming widespread. Everybody that I have turned on to it here. Everybody that I've met that has been inspired or has learned how to be IB has never has looked back. Has liked it. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, you don't do the first process that you talked about where you buy ha- something half made. Right. You're, You're starting, starting with from grain. Mm-hmm. Yep. And are more home brewers wanting to start from scratch? Yeah. Because that is actually, well, first of all, it is less expensive to buy grain than it okay. is to buy malt extract. And there's many, many more varieties of grain available. So you have extract. yeah, way more options. Completely customizable. Are there any types of beers that won't go with the with the uh, brew in a bag? Brew in a bag. No, I don't think so. Uh, it's a little bit trickier to get very high alcohol beers. Now those aren't beers that I generally that I ever brew anymore. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, that's a little trickier. But there are definitely methods to do so with brew that fit with brew in a bag. Okay. Now I'm um, I love hop hoppy beers. Mm-hmm. So I was really impressed with your hop chart. Now, are there many different hop oh charts? God. Are there? Yeah. So you had 20. Right. Are those 20 most popular? I'd say those are, it was kind of a combination of my favorite and kind of my favorite from each t- kind of loose type. Okay. Um, but yeah, there are okay. so many hops and there are new varieties being developed mm-hmm. almost every year. It sounds a little like pot. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and the names. I, well, pot is the of, closest relative. I mean, hops are the closest relative oh, okay. to, to marijuana. And so. yeah, the pictures look a little bit like yeah. that too. <laughs> Not that I would know. Um, okay, another question. Uh, once I started thinking about pot, are there different highs from beer? Ooh, no, I I don't know. I I <laughs> my scientist says, oh my god, you cannot say anything because. Well, no, because we don't. I've never actually seen a clinical study on that. Like, okay. So, if you gave somebody, you know, a higher alcohol imperial stout that was maltier and had, you know, different ingredients, probably there's some different right. co- end compounds, mm-hmm. you know, versus giving somebody, you know, a four and a half percent lager, then 
and you, you did blood. Right. You know, well, you had him well, drink the, that, and you had did blood work. I don't know. That'd be well. Interesting. The percents are going to be very right, exactly. But I guess if you but, made it yeah, equivalent, yeah. you know, so if you gave somebody, you know, eight ounces of an imperial stout or whatever, and then, and then the double, equivalent, right? Yeah. Right. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, but there, it does seem that most people say beer is a different high than wine Alco- right, or right, alcohol. Right, and I think that's true. Per- I find that personally, but I don't know. I'd be curious to see if you did. Right, it, I don't you know, know if they've done double placebo. Yeah, double right, blind right. placebo. <laughs> now, when you taste a craft beer, can you figure out the recipe? No, I would say I could not. Uh, I'm not. Can other people? I think they could come pretty darn close. There's mm-hmm. definitely, there's a lot of homebrewers that try to clone beers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know your ingredients really, really well, from malt to hop to, to yeast, um, and there's nothing proprietary in that craft beer. So they haven't developed their own no yeast strain, for instance. Right. No yeah. secret ingredients. Then a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of clones where people have, have tried to figure it out that were really spot on. Mm-hmm. So I think and why do you good homebrewers can't do it. Well, I, I think because I, mean, I do you've all, written a book. Yeah, but I do. All, I really like these other beverages. I think I oh, can. Okay. I would be more like I'm more likely to figure out the spice combination um, than the you malt. You have a broad much. interest. Yeah, you have a broad palette. Yeah, and so. I hit a lot of different areas. Okay. Okay. Whereas you know I'm not um, I'm not as much of a malt. I wouldn't call myself as much of a malt expert as okay. as. You know, say John Mallet, who wrote the book on malt. (laughs) Okay. Are craft brewers secretive or open about their recipes? It's a mixed bag. I would say for the most part, people are very open. Mm -hmm. Like that's something, you know, I I mentioned the American Homebrewers Association before, and they put out a a magazine called Zymergy, and they actually reach out. They have a lot of, you know, they reach out to pro brewers and the pro brewers give them their recipe and they, you know, they huh. they publish a homebrewing version. Huh. So a lot of professional brewers are very open about their recipes. They are happy to support homebrewers, happy to share what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally you come across, usually, you know, you, occasionally you come across a, a brewery that's secretive. But for the most part, you can... You can figure out. I mean, I could take a beer and eventually figure mm-hmm. out how to make it. Mm-hmm. There's really not much proprietary... Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the brew, beer and world. And are the smaller craft beers, are they consistent? Or will the batches vary a lot? I think consistent, consistency can be achieved regardless of the size of the brewery. Okay. Um, it just might take an, some extra effort. It's going to depend on your equipment and your mm-hmm. practices. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, I read one of your hops was mosaic. Mm-hmm. Does that mean it's the only ingredient in mosaic beer, which I think I've had at Roberta's? It depends on the beer. Okay. So a lot of times someone might use a different hop to bitter with, but maybe they'll just use you know, mosaic, or maybe they'll use a combination, but they'll be mostly mosaic. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's so a that should, Yes. To, to the taste. Yeah, exactly. The okay. leading aroma and, and flavor. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Now, are smoked beers, you know, she has everything in this book, <laughs> are smoked beers related to smoky, peaty, single malt scotch? They can be, yeah. Can so, be. smoky, sm- most smoked beers are derived from the malt. Okay. So... Because um, you can actually get smoked malt. There's other ways to put smoke into your beer, but that's the number one way. And I believe that's also the same with whiskey. I think so, whiskey. because I think... Um, they use a, a smoked I, malt. I think they also... Isle of Malt Cheese, which tastes a little like scotch, those sh- those cows eat 
the oh, leftovers. The spent grain. The spent grain. Yeah, that would yeah. make sense. Ooh, yeah. now I gotta try. I've never yeah. tried that cheese before. Oh, I just had some at a party. It was delicious. That's, yeah, sounds amazing. <laughs> anyway, okay, so uh, smash. Now, the word smash, this is another one. It means single malt and single hop. Yep. Is that frequent? Uh, you're seeing it more so nowadays. Um, I think a lot of times, especially for beginner home brewers, mm-hmm. they have a te- you have a tendency to put too many ingredients. You know, you want to, who I, I want, imagine. yeah, I want a little bit of color from this malt. I want a little bit of this flavor. I want, you know, and so th- oftentimes that leads to a very muddied beer. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas single malt, single hop. A, it allows you to really get familiar with that single malt and right, single it would hop. Be a good education. Yeah, and also you just can make a really clean, delicious beer mm-hmm. that is really, and those tend to be more hop-forward beers, I okay. would say. Okay, I like the concept. Yeah, I, and you know, this is another thing. Who knew? Yeah, because you could do a series <laughs> of, of smash beers, you know, and keep the malt the same—a very clean, light malt—and uh-huh. then change hops up, and you would have, you know, a similar beer, but it would be riffs. a great way of. Evaluating yep. hop differences. Absolutely. Okay. Now, I also loved the name of Pennsylvania Swanky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's in the book, too. You can make that. That's a pretty easy one. Yeah, and quick to ferment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Lower alcohol brown ale. Uh huh. Amazing. Um, your pictures, uh, you use many different styles of glasses. Are you a glass-matching person? No. I drink, a stemless white wine glass is my go-to glass at all times. Like, at, at home? Yeah, at home. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I'm really bad. at. St- I always break stuff. I'm always going off in two different directions, or I forget I have a glass sitting next to me. I don't care if it's alcohol or not. Like, right. stems are bad. I'm a bad person for stems. Okay. Um, and I think white wine glasses you can drink almost anything out of. Now, mm-hmm. we do. Now, saying that, we probably have over probably close to 300 or more glasses in our apartment right now. <laughs> Not only because of the book, but we just get a Purchase lot of glassware. Yeah, mostly yeah, gifts. Mostly gifts. gifts. Um, but so uh, don't, don't send any for a wedding present. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but, but I think, yeah. But you match them to the right beer. Definitely. For the book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think it's cool. It's, and there's it is, a whole school of thought on that. Oh, yeah. And I think that that is legitimate. I have been to, like, um, Speak Allow mm-hmm. does a, they have a, a whole line of glasses. And the beverages really do taste differently, depending. And I so, do actually choose different glassware, depending. But but I but I think the white, you know, a white wine glass is an all-around <laughs> winner. Okay. Um, but, yeah, definitely the the the. the Shape and style of the glass has an impact on what you're smelling on the taste. and tasting. Okay. Yep. And aroma okay. as well. Okay. So you should follow the rules. Of, are the rules <laughs> what's well, kind in of, a book? Yeah, they there must be. There yeah, must there be are definitely. Beer uh, glass rules. Yeah, and there's also, like, I think the American Homebrewers Association, the, the Brewers Association, has a guide to glassware as well. Um, it's a lot of fun to do that. I think, I find that's more interesting to play around with. Like, you know, get a group of friends together, you know, get some really nice craft beer. And, you know, and three different glasses and see, it's mm-hmm. a really good way to right. train your palate right. and kind of right. figure out what you like. Because you might like, you know, we might have, say, let's, we share a double IPA mm-hmm. and we put it in two different glasses. You might prefer one glass over mine, depending on, you know, what you're smelling and what you're tasting and what you want to taste right. and smell. Right, right, right. Okay, so now meads. This is a whole other category in the book. Um, where can you go in the city to taste these and find out if you'd like to make them? So <laughs> there really are very 
almost no short meads. So what I'd make is a lower alcohol mead. So mm-hmm. it's generally under 5%. Are meads mostly strong? Yeah, 12 to 18%. Oh, that's very strong. Yes, they're more wine wine strength. Okay. Um, and we're very lucky to have some wonderful mead makers in the Northeast Mid-Atlantic region. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like Jimmy's, Number mm-hmm. 43 all, always has meads on. There are a few places around that have meads on. Okay. Um, and you can buy them oftentimes in the, the wine liquor store here in New York. Okay. Um, there is a meadery. Are they always big bottles? Yeah, they're gen- generally. There is a meadery that's out of the Midwest called Bee Nectar. Mm-hmm. And they just came into the New York market recently. And they do have some shorter meads, some, some lower mm-hmm. alcohol meads. And meads are always from honey? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Fermented honey. Okay. Uh, and is it easier to make? The recipe looks uh, kind faster. of short. Yeah, super fast. <laughs> that so a mead that, is something that attracted me. Yeah, you can get up ten minutes early in the morning. You can have a mead, you know, a short mead going by the time you leave for work. Yes, but when can you drink it? It would be well. It depends on your temperatures and you know the yeast you use. A lot, there's a lot of different factors, but I can push meads out in a short meads. In okay. about a little over a week, I would say. Okay. If, okay. I've gotten so pretty good nothing. with manipulating my ferments, though. <laughs> so, so is there anything you can make in the morning and drink for dinner? Uh, that's fermented and alcoholic? Yeah. It won't be alcoholic. I'd say water kefir is your best bet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, why no um, ABVs on the mead or cider? Um, in the book. In the book? I think because... I don't know. That's a good question. So I think it's because homebrewers are more number-centric mm-hmm. than... Than typical side and cider and mead okay, makers okay. and drinkers. So you didn't feel compelled. No, my editor is actually a home brewer, and I think I don't know. I, I feel like ABVs and those you know these numbers, this OG and mm-hmm. and um, which tells you how that gives you the potential of how much alcohol. OG is a, it, it measures the gravity. It it tells you how much mm-hmm. potential alcohol that your beverage has. Mm-hmm. All these numbers, you know, this um, how hoppy your beer is going to be. Those are really. Uh, uh, kind of standard in beer recipes, but they're not as standard in cider and, and mead and on okay. some of these other freeform beverages. Okay. Well, um, I do have more questions, but our time is <laughs> up. This, this book is just amazing in terms of teaching you about beer or teaching you uh, a lot of different things. Ferment- the basics of fermentation. Right. Even if you don't want to make them at your house, you, yeah. can, you can learn a lot by reading this book. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for and, having me on. Um, Next time, my next uh, guest is Gordon Edgar uh, talking about his cheddar book. But I want to thank Mary Isaac and Speed Brewing for today's show. Thanks. Thank you. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.